This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Broadcast Church Planting Podcast. Today we're going back in our archive to May 2015, where we hear a hangout with Dan Hayter from our Theology Training Stream, and we'll be hearing about the mission of God and the story of the New Testament. Last time around we heard about the Old Testament, this is the follow-up to that hangout. You can find this full hangout, including a Q&A with Dan and all the notes on everything that he had to say at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 25. So without any further delay, here is Dan Hayter. Um, yeah, Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity um, to be able to gather together, even though we're in completely different parts of the UK, and to look at your words. And Father, I pray you'd be with us tonight, Lord God. I pray that we'd learn, um, Lord, I pray we'd learn information, Lord God, but I pray that more than anything else, we would get revelation of you and your mission and your character, Lord God, and that what we learn today and what we look at and discuss would really propel us um, forward in our mission and would help us to really be fruitful for for you and for Jesus' glory, Lord. And we pray you'd be with us by your spirit tonight. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to try and make sure I basically run through until about 20 past eight by the looks of it in terms of just running through material. So um, I don't know if Tom's sent out, um, there will be probably notes of some kind available. So um, I'm going to stick broadly to the order the order of what's in the notes but obviously i'm not going to go into as much depth and i might kind of pick up on things a little bit more and elaborate a bit more um here and there Uh, but the idea is basically to look at the mission of god in the new testament and so last time by the sounds of it you did um kind of the story of of the old testament and the idea is to continue that on into the new testament um and so what we're going to do is I've kind of broken it into three parts, where the first bit we'll look at is God's mission in the Gospels. Um, the second bit we'll look at is God's mission in the church, which in, in terms of the New Testament is basically the story of Acts. And then God's mission, um, so, and, and then God's mission accomplished, basically, the final part, where you're really looking at what does it look like when God's mission reaches its final goal. And the New Testament gives us lots of insight into that. And particularly in places like Revelation, you get a sense of what is it going to be like when God's mission finally reaches its climax um, and all things are recreated. So that, that's the idea. 30 minutes for a whistle stop tour of the New Testament, which means we're not going to be able to do it justice at all. But we're going to hopefully at least give you a framework to help you see how the whole thing fits together, which means that when we've got questions after, you can hopefully pick up on little bits here and there and um, I can elaborate on them a bit more. Um, So before we even launch into the New Testament itself, one thing to make really clear is when we're talking about mission, um, we can often think of mission in a very kind of, I suppose in a human-centered way. We think we are called by God to go to preach the gospel to all nations. We're kind of lending God a bit of a service. We're, we're doing him a favor. Whereas actually what the, what the Bible suggests is that actually the mission is primarily God's mission. And if you look at the Old Testament and you look particularly at the, the first few chapters, you realize that God's mission is ultimately about filling the whole earth with his glory. 
Um, and so what we realize is actually the mission we're sent to do and the mission we see in the New Testament and the Old Testament is not ultimately man's mission. It's God's mission that human beings get to participate in. So we need to be really 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 clear on that front um and so before we look at the gospels um we need to just quickly recap the story up until now so really really quickly i imagine what you saw with rich assuming he was following the same old testament as i do was um that essentially what happens at the beginning is god creates the universe and the and the world and eden as a place for his glory to dwell and that the the original idea was that eden is kind of almost this this temple Um, in which God's presence is meant to dwell. And that little by little, as human beings who bear the image and reflect the glory of God fill the whole earth, little by little, the whole world becomes a gigantic temple. Um, And that's kind of the the goal of, of God's creation, is that eventually the whole world is filled with his glory. The whole world becomes a dwelling place for his glory. Um, Obviously, as we know, that went pear-shaped with human beings failing to, uh, to fulfill that responsibility. And so what happens is after a few chapters of disaster, God elects a man called Abraham and he says, through your descendants, I am going to undo the problem that has come across as a result of the curse of Adam. In other words, through your descendants, my mission to fill the earth with my glory is actually going to take place finally. And what we see as we trace the story of Abraham's descendants throughout the Old Testament is that you have various highs and and many, many lows until eventually what happens is um, in, in about the 6th century BC, God's people are exiled into Babylon as a punishment and discipline for failing to, basically failing again to be God's representative people. Um, and when they actually return from exile after 70 years, everything's pear-shaped. They've had, when they've been in exile, they've had huge promises of what God's going to do when they return from exile. And seemingly, it seems like all of those promises have failed. The temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. It was rebuilt, but it didn't look a thing like it used to. And most importantly, God's glory didn't seem to have returned to it. So you basically, you, you start at the beginning of the New Testament. If you read to the end of the Old Testament, you end on a bit of a low, really. You just, you end with a sense of God's purposes don't seem to have been fulfilled. It looks like God's mission has potentially failed. At which point we hit the Gospels. Um, and that's so that's where the story's taken us so far. And it's really important to know that backstory because if you launch into the New Testament and into the Gospels without a sense of what that backstory is, a lot of the Gospels won't actually make too much sense. Um, you might pick up on the odd thing here and there, but if you don't know the overarching story of God's mission that's been going on so far, the, the Gospels will not make as much sense as they will if you're aware of that. Um, so what's happened is, so obviously we're at, we're at a point where God's people are feeling very abandoned by him, low. It seems like God's promises haven't been fulfilled. And it seems like God's temple has not been filled with the glory that should have returned to it. At which point Jesus enters and we get the Gospels. And one of the main themes that you get in, in the Gospels, which we might not always notice because we don't live in a world which is filled with temples, is that actually the glory of God has returned to the temple. And that's something we, we like. We like the first chapter of John. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Um, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only son of the father. We, we like that verse because it's, it's about the incarnation. It's about God becoming flesh. But there's actually part of that verse disregarding the fact that there's the crazy idea that God has become a man. There is part of that verse that a Jewish reader would have read blinked read it again and probably fallen over in shock before picking up stones to either stone you because for blasphemy or falling on his face and worshiping god and that is the phrase and the the word of god became flesh and tabernacle or dwelt amongst us and we saw his glory glory is temple language 
The glory of God is supposed to fill the temple. And what John is trying to scream at us is, in Jesus, God's glory has returned to the temple, but it didn't look a thing like what his people expected. God's people expected the glory of God to return to the temple itself, the the physical building in Jerusalem, but actually God's glory returned to the temple of the body of Jesus. And so when you look at Jesus, you are essentially looking at a walking, talking temple throughout the Gospels. You're looking at the person who carries the very presence of God with him to the point that John is able to say, I was an eyewitness to this and I saw the glory of God when I looked at Jesus because I was looking at the glory of God returning to the temple. And so suddenly you get this sense of excitement that God's mission is back on course. His mission to fill the earth with his glory is back on course because his glory is back in the temple. It's not back in the physical temple, but it's back in the temple of Jesus' body. Um, And so God's mission is on course. Another thing you get at the beginning of the Gospels particularly is if we remember that Israel are feeling low, they're feeling abandoned by God because they've been in exile. And now that they've returned, everything seems to be just as bad as it was whilst they were in exile. There's a sense in which the exile never really ended when they returned back from Babylon. But what you get, in, particularly in, in Mark and Matthew and Luke, which are, we call the synoptic Gospels, is they all start their narrative of um, Jesus's ministry with prophecies about the return from exile. We might not always know that because we don't always know the original context of the prophecies. But right at the, right at the beginning of, of, of Mark and of Matthew, there are promises from Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 52, which are quoted. And those promises are promises of God's glory returning to his people at the end of the exile. And so the gospel writers are screaming at us again, saying, look, The exile didn't end in the 5th century BC. The exile didn't end when God's people returned from Babylon. The exile ends with Jesus. Um, And that's really important. If you read the Gospels, realizing that part of what the Gospel writers are trying to say is the story of Israel's exile has now come to an end because their Messiah has arrived. Suddenly you realize that there's there's a real twist in the narrative Um, And actually, you read the rest of the gospel in excitement, thinking, oh, my goodness, the end of the exiles come. What's going to happen? And often you find out things don't always seem to be the way you'd expect it to be. So the exile is over. The the glory has returned to the temple, which means God's mission is on course still. At which point, Jesus's message, if you kind of summarize Jesus's message really from the gospels, is mainly that God's kingdom has come near. So we often think of we often think of the kingdom of God. And I think we we often overcomplicate things a little bit when it's when we're when we're talking about what the kingdom of god means but if you think about just what a kingdom is generally uh, think about the kingdom of of england or of uh, great britain is essentially a country ruled by a particular person and filled with a particular people who are being ruled by that person so essentially when jesus is talking about the kingdom of god coming he's saying god is coming to reign as king on earth So in other words, God is going to be in charge of his people. God is going to be in charge of the world, which to me sounds like God's mission is on course. If God's purpose was to fill the earth with his glory, that would look like God ruling and reigning over the whole of creation. And so anytime you read Jesus talking about the kingdom, you can almost replace it by saying this is what it looks like when God is reigning as king over the world. Um, And so you read the parables and you read the the parables where Jesus says the kingdom of God is like, is like leaven that a a woman puts inside a a batch of dough and, um, and, and the, the bread rises little by little and you read it and you think, actually that's a description of what it looks like when God is reigning as king. And Jesus is coming along and saying, God is returning as king which means the exile is over, the glory is returning back to the temple, my mission is on course. But 
there was something that looked dramatically different in what Jesus was doing to what his Jewish contemporaries would have expected. So the, his Jewish contemporaries, those who were expecting a Messiah, would have expected a conqueror. They'd have expected someone who would overthrow the Romans, and they'd have expected someone who would destroy the, or at least rebuild the temple that was in Jerusalem at the moment, because it was the temple in Jerusalem at that time was kind of renovated by Herod, who was a fake, phony Jewish king, and no one liked him. And they thought the Messiah would come along and rebuild the temple, and then finally God's glory would actually return. But what Jesus does is instead of mounting a kind of military revolt against the Romans, he ends up suddenly saying to his, to his disciples, actually, we're going to have to go to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, the son of man, that's me, is going to be handed over to pagans and is going to be beaten and flogged and crucified. And on the third day will rise again. Now, that is something that a Messiah is simply not supposed to say. Um, a Messiah was not expected to be, be killed. For the simple fact that the Messiah was not expected to be defeated. So when Jesus claims to be the Messiah and then says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and when I get to Jerusalem, the Romans are going to crucify me, that's a complete contradiction in terms as far as his hearers are concerned. So they just, they just don't get that. But eventually that is what we end up with. We end up with Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah, which in biblical terms means he's going to bring God's victory hanging on the instrument of Roman victory. And so the cross... It, the, the cross was meant to communicate that Rome had won and that you don't mess with Rome. And this guy who was claiming to be the Messiah, the king of God's people, was hanging on that very instrument of defeat. And so what we realize is that in the cross, we have one of the greatest ironies that you ever have. That actually, the, when, when everyone would have been looking at the cross thinking, that is a massive defeat, we now look with hindsight after the resurrection and realize, actually, far from being the biggest defeat, that was actually the greatest victory of all because Jesus, as he was hanging there was in fact fulfilling what it meant to be the Messiah. Because again, there's another passage in the old Testament that the, the gospel writers like to refer to Isaiah, Isaiah 52. Um, we're very familiar with the passage, the chapter that comes after Isaiah 53. We might not be as familiar with Isaiah 52, but it talks about God's God returning to his people, the ends of the earth, seeing the salvation of God. And that's the kind of thing they'd have expected when the Messiah arrived but immediately after this incredible prophecy of God's glory returning and the ends of the earth seeing the glory of God, Isaiah starts saying, but who on earth would have believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He was, he was like nothing and he was crushed and bruised for our iniquities. In other words, the gospel writers had read their Old Testament and Jesus knew his Old Testament and he realized that actually in order to win the ultimate victory that was prophesied, he had to also become the suffering servant that Isaiah had prophesied. There was a payment that was needed in order for the ultimate victory to come. And so completely against all odds and completely against all expectations, the cross and the kingdom completely went hand in hand in Jesus' point of view. And as a result of that, the greatest victory was ever won, which was then confirmed on the third day by the resurrection as Jesus burst out from the tomb triumphantly. Now, just imagine you're a disciple and you've seen Jesus die on the cross your thought is not, oh, he's all right, he's going to rise again in three days. You're not expecting that. You've misunderstood what Jesus has said. What you're expecting is defeat, I'm just going to lay low so the Romans don't get me. And instead, what you get three days later is Jesus appearing to you and saying, essentially, in other words, don't worry, God's mission is still on course. 
And so that's where you get by the end of the Gospels, you've, you've had this kind of roller coaster of a ride where it, right at the start, you've got this kind of almost bang of Je- Jesus is coming, God's glory is returning to his temple, the exile's over. And by the end of the Gospel, you end up with a crucified Messiah. And then you suddenly get another reversal of circumstances where you realize that actually, far from being a defeat, the cross was part of God's plan all the way along. And it was his way of winning the victory. And the resurrection confirms that. And the resurrection launches a new age where actually, because of what Jesus has done, all of the promises you get in the Old Testament that would lead to God's mission being fulfilled can suddenly now come to pass. And as a result, Jesus then says to his disciples, because now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, now you as my followers must go and proclaim this good news of my life, death, resurrection, and my reign and return to all nations and to let them know that they can come to turn to God. And what we see is by the end of the Gospels, although we'd started, the, although the end of the Old Testament had looked like God's mission had failed, and or wasn't on course we hit the end of the gospel and we realize god's mission is now gloriously back on course at which point we hit kind of chunk number two i think i spent probably deliberately a little bit more time on the gospels but nowhere near as much as you'd really want to just because that's that's where the rest of the new testament flows out from ultimately the the story of the church and god's mission and the story of god's mission being fulfilled ultimately flows out of jesus's life death and resurrection and so what we get after the gospels have told the story of his life death and resurrection is we get the mission of god through the church which we ultimately we obviously see in the story of acts um now acts we can often think of as a description of what the church got up to in the early days of the church which in a sense is true but in a deeper sense acts is actually a story about what jesus got up to in the early days of the church and you, you see that if you read the opening verses of Acts, you see Luke, who's writing that, um, he says, in my first book, which is, he's referring to the Gospel of Luke, he says, I, I wrote about what Jesus began to do and, and through his disciples. The implication is he's still doing something. And now, sorry, what he began to do um, in his own ministry. And the implication is now he's continuing to do something, but the way he does it is actually through his church. And so that's what you see in Acts. And so Acts begins with Jesus meeting with his disciples and saying, I'm going to ascend to the Father, but you guys wait in Jerusalem until you've received the promised Holy Spirit and you have received power from on high. And when that happens, you're going to be my witnesses. In other words, you're going to tell people that you have seen me raised from the dead and you're going to preach the gospel to them. And that is going to happen in Jerusalem and Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus ascends to heaven and the disciples end up going back to Jerusalem and waiting a little while. The whole of Acts is actually structured around that particular commandment of Jesus. Jesus says, wait for the Holy Spirit. Then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Acts basically tells us the story of how God's gospel was preached in Jerusalem and Judea, first of all, and then Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. You can look at the, the very way that it's put together. Chapters 1 to 7 are about the gospel of God succeeding in Jerusalem and Judea. And then you get to chapter 8 and suddenly something happens, which we'll, we'll look at a little bit, where suddenly the Samaritans start hearing about the gospel. The gospel's being preached in Samaria. And then particularly from chapter 13 onwards, where you get Paul and Barnabas going, starting to go on their missionary journeys, we get the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And by the time we reach the, ends of, the end of Acts, we've got Paul 
the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem preaching the gospel at this point at least completely unharmed and unhindered and you've got to remember that in those days Rome was the center of the world as far as the the as far as people in that part of the world were concerned so Luke's essentially saying the mission of God to the ends of the earth is succeeding even though it hasn't quite reached reached its complete goal so that's the way even the way Acts is structured is trying to point out God's mission is going forward it didn't stop at Jerusalem and Judea it didn't stop at Samaria it didn't stop at Rome even Acts ends on an open-ended note it's supposed to go all the way to the ends of the earth um but the reason that that mission is even possible, so you've got Jesus comes along, he's the Messiah, you kind of think, okay, well, fair enough, of course, he can do some pretty good stuff. How is it that God's people are going to be able to bear witness to the gospel? How is it that God's people are going to be able to further his mission? Well, the reason is um, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Um, as charismatics, we very often like to refer to Pentecost because we like the idea of um spiritual gifts and the spirit um, moving during times of worship, which is all brilliant and fantastic. And we want to pursue and follow that. But actually the primary purpose of the spirit being given in Pentecost in Acts 2 is actually to fulfill God's mission. It's not primarily in that context about spiritual gifts in a church context. It's not primarily about anointed worship times, whatever you would mean by that. It's primarily about God saying, I am equipping my church so that they can fulfill the mission that I've given them to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Um, and on the notes, when you look, I've put a few things that you can see in Acts 2 when the, the Spirit is poured out, that kind of, when you look at it in terms of the big picture, just make Pentecost much a much bigger deal than we, than we could even, we often think that it is. Pentecost is about the beginning of a completely, completely new age. Um, it's about when God pours his spirit out and says, and because I've poured my spirit out, the new age of the spirit has begun, which means my mission to fill the earth with its glory is on course because my temple is now no longer a building. It's now not even just in the body of Jesus. It is in the church itself. And there's a quote here, which um, by a guy called Tom Wright, who many of you may have heard of about the idea of the church being the temple of God, because that's essentially one of the things that's happening at Pentecost is the church have now become the dwelling place of God's presence. And Tom Wright writes this in a, in a big, heavy academic volume, which is not generally the kind of place where you highlight stuff and write yes in the margin. But I just I tend to find for some reason when I'm reading big books by Tom Wright, I will write yes in the margin quite a lot and highlight loads of stuff. Um, but he ends up saying this. He says, Paul says to, um, Paul writes, you are the temple of the living God. Paul says this not to the Philippians he loved so much, not to the Thessalonians in the midst of their suffering and danger, but to the recalcitrant, muddled, problem-ridden Corinthians. This is not, in other words, a sober judgment based on the noticeable holiness or gospel-inspired love or joy of this or that church. For Paul, it is simply a fact. The living God who had said he would put his name in the great house in Jerusalem has put that name upon and within these little surprised communities dotted around the world of the northeastern Mediterranean. Unless we are shocked by this, we have not seen the point. And I remember reading that, and it's obviously, he's very eloquent and articulate, but that just that idea of God writing to the church in Corinth and saying, you guys are the temple of God. And if you read 1 Corinthians, you will realize that this was not the kind of standard, nice, holy-looking church. 
There was a guy who was sleeping with his stepmom. Their public meetings did more harm than good. They were getting drunk over the Lord's Supper. But yet, God writes, uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he says, you are the temple of the living God. And Tom Wright picks up on this, and he says, what Paul is claiming there is absolutely exceptional. What Paul is saying is that God, who said, my presence will dwell in the great house in Jerusalem, has now, in the last days, put his presence and his name inside various little churches dotted all around the Eastern Mediterranean. And just that final phrase where he says, if we are not shocked by this, we have not seen the point, that gets, gets me every time. I just look at it and I think, I don't think I appreciate the sheer magnitude of what it is for the church to be the temple of God. Um, and just as a kind of a practical thing, when you're, in, when you're praising or worshipping in church next, um, from time to time, why don't you just open your eyes and have a look around and tell yourself you are looking at the very temple of the living God. You're looking at the very place where God's presence dwells. And so what we've gone from, if you, we want to kind of recap the story, is God creating a, a garden temple in Eden so that the ends of the earth would be filled with his glory. That failing and little by little coming, um, coming to dwell in the tabernacle and then the temple and then seemingly the temple be, being abandoned by God until eventually Jesus comes and he becomes the true temple where God's glory returns. And now what we have with the beginning of the age of the spirit is that the church itself has become the temple of the living God, which is exactly why they can fulfill God's mission. They preach the gospel and as they do that, the church gets bigger and little by little, the temple of God gets bigger, which is exactly what was supposed to happen. The temple of God was supposed to eventually fill the whole world. And we see that mission carried out in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, or at least we see it partially carried out to the ends of the earth within Acts itself. But that's not the end of the story, because there's the final chunk of God's mission um, in the New Testament, which is what happens when everyone has heard the gospel, and what happens when God's mission to the ends of the earth has succeeded. And that's where we hit the last and third and final point of, um, of the session which is God's mission accomplished. Um, Because so far we've had God's spirit poured out on the church, the new temple of the church, little by little, as they preach the gospel, spreading, growing, getting bigger. But what's going to happen is there is going to be a day where every single tribe and tongue will have heard the gospel. That has not happened yet. But there will be a day where every single people group in the world has had the gospel preached to them, at which point the end will come. And there's, there's a passage which you can, you can look at more in depth than those. But in Romans 15, 20, Paul says this. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And then he, he ends up saying, but as it is written, those who have never heard will hear and those who have never seen will perceive. What's happening is Paul has been gripped with such a passion to see God's gospel go to the ends of the earth that he's saying, my ambition is to proclaim the gospel when no one else has proclaimed it. And if you've heard Dave Devonish talk about mission for any more than a few minutes, he will have probably quoted this passage because that's one of the things that drove Paul in his mission. But the reason that drove Paul is not just the fact that Paul felt that God had told him personally to do that. Part of what drove Paul is he realised that the whole biblical story was ultimately aiming towards the the good news of God going to the ends of the earth, because that's what it would take for God's glory to fill the ends of the earth. 
So it's kind of on the one hand, Paul saying, yeah, I feel God has given me this commission. On the other hand, Paul's saying, I, I know my Bible and I know my Old Testament and I know that the nations are supposed to gather and come in and they're supposed to be gathered in as part of God's people. And the, the, as Isaiah 2 says, the, 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 hit, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be the highest mountain and the, the temple of God will be the thing that everyone can see. Paul knew his Old Testament and he realized the mission that God had given him to go to people who'd never heard the gospel was actually at the very heart of what God's mission was about, which was to see the earth filled with his glory. And so that eventually what happens as missionaries go and preach the gospel and plant churches in various parts of the world, and as we proclaim the gospel to our friends, is that eventually the whole of the earth has representatives of people who have heard the gospel and responded to it, at which point we get this incredible scene in Revelation 7, where John, who's writing about this, writing this vision he has, he ends up saying, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When I, when I get there on that day, what there, there's outside of Jesus and God's and uh, and uh, there is one person that I want to try and find that day, and that is Abraham, because Abraham's going to be standing there on that day, and he's going to be looking back, back thousands of years to the point where God made a promise to him and said, in your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. And he's going to be standing there, and I reckon he's just going to have the biggest smile on his face as he looks around and says, I never realized it would be this big. And what you see in Revelation 7, when you read that and realize that this this is the fulfillment of a promise that was made thousands of years before to some random pagan worshipper in the Middle East, you realize God's passion to see his mission fulfilled is so great that this is the kind of result you get. The whole world has had people who have heard the gospel and responded to it. And as a result, people from every tribe and nation and language have gathered around the throne. They have had the spirit. They have been filled with the spirit. They've become the temple of the living God. And they're crying out saying salvation belongs to our God. That, I think, is what drove Paul. That particular vision is probably what drove Paul to say, I'm going where no one's gone because I want to see that come. And then again, we're, and we're, kind of coming into land here what happens when the gospel has been proclaimed and all of those people have been gathered into god's people is that the final enemy ends up being destroyed i don't know i don't know the the way you talk about um christian hope i don't know what the kind of language you'd use is but a, a classic way of talking about christian hope is to say when we die we go to be with jesus in heaven And whilst I understand the sentiment of that and whilst actually the idea of dying and going to be with Jesus is in itself inexplicably glorious, if the hope of Christians is to die and go and be with Jesus, that will be great for ourselves, but actually that would mean that God's mission has ultimately failed because it would mean the earth hasn't been filled with his glory because the earth is just a kind of brushed away whilst loads of dead souls float around enjoying fellowship with God forever, but still floating as disembodied souls God's mission requires that actually what happens at the end of time is that God's people are physically raised from the dead and that the whole of creation is restored. And that's exactly what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about the idea that when Jesus comes back, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And at that point, 
Paul says, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In other words, there's going to be a day that's coming where Jesus returns and all those who are in Christ will be raised imperishable. And we're going to stand and look death in the face and taunt death and say, where's your sting? And we're going to look back over again, thousands of years of God's mission and say, God's mission was that the earth would be filled with his glory and now we are living in a completely renewed creation mission accomplished and what you see when you read the last two chapters of the bible is a real pictorial description of what it will what it will be like it's not meant to be taken literally as um there will literally be a cubic city if you read revelation 21 there is a cubic city it's not meant to be taken literally as the whole world is a massive cube but what Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 are doing is describing in language that would, would remind a Jewish reader of a temple what the new creation looks like. And it says that actually the new creation as a whole is actually a gigantic temple. And you read Revelation 21 and you remember what God's original design was, what that was that the earth would be a temple and the whole earth would be filled with his glory. And you realize what has happened in Revelation 21 and what has happened as the mission is accomplished is not actually just a return to Eden. Some people are often confused. They think, well, we had Eden, we had a nice garden, and now we end up with a city at the end of time. How does that work? Well, the idea is we haven't returned back to Eden. We've returned to what Eden would have become if Adam hadn't failed at his commission. Because actually what has happened is in the process, a true human being who did not fail in his mission to be God's image bearer ended up succeeding where Adam failed. Adam failed to get rid of the serpent. Jesus crushed the serpent's head. And as a result of that, he carried God's mission to fill the earth with his glory right to the extreme, to the point where we can look at Revelation 21 and say, mission accomplished. God's mission is complete. And the New Testament is meant to tell that story. If you read the New Testament and just always read it in bits and in isolation, you might not necessarily get that picture as much. But when you read it in the context of the story and constantly reminding yourself of what's gone on so far, what you realize is even though a lot of it is letters and a lot of it might be stuff that you might not immediately see how it fits in, when you read it with that backstory in mind, you realize that what's driving the whole thing forward is God's zeal to see the ends of the earth filled filled with his glory And we see that accomplished in Revelation 21 as the whole of creation is filled with God's glory and God's mission is accomplished. Well, we hope you found what Dan had to say in the Hangout helpful and interesting. If you'd like all of the notes plus a Q&A with Dan, you can find it at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 25.